0: Chapter One of Pele the Conqueror, Volume One by Martin Anderson Nexo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pele the Conqueror, Volume One by Martin Anderson Nexo. Translated by Jesse Muir. Part One Boyhood, Chapter One. It was the dawn of the first of May, 1877. From the sea the mist came sweeping in, in a gray trail that lay heavily on the water. Here and there there was a movement in it. It seemed about to lift, but closed in again, leaving only a strip of shore with two old boats lying keel uppermost upon it. The prow of a third boat and a bit of breakwater showed dimly in the mist a few paces off. At definite intervals a smooth gray wave came gliding out of the mist, up over the rustling shingle, and then withdrew again. It was as if some great animal lay hidden out there in the fog, and lapped at the land. A couple of hungry crows were busy with a black inflated object down there, probably the carcass of a dog. Each time a wave glided in, they rose and hovered a few feet up in the air with their legs extended straight down toward their booty, as if held by some invisible attachment. When the water retreated, they dropped down and buried their heads in the carrion, but kept their wings spread, ready to rise before the next advancing wave. This was repeated with the regularity of clockwork. A shout came vibrating in from the harbor, and a little while after, a heavy sound of oars working over the edge of a boat. The sound grew more distant, and at last ceased. But then a bell began to ring. It must have been at the end of the mole, and out of the distance, into which the beat of the oars had disappeared, came the answering sound of a horn. They continued to answer one another for a couple of minutes. The town was invisible, but now and then the silence there was broken by the iron tramp of a quarryman upon the stone paving. For a long time the regular beat of his footsteps could be heard, until it suddenly ceased as if he turned some corner or other. Then a door was opened, followed by the sound of a loud morning yawn, and some one began to sweep the pavement. Windows were opened here and there out of which floated various sounds to greet the gray day. A woman's sharp voice was heard scolding, then short smart slaps, and the crying of a child. A shoemaker began beating leather, and as he worked fell to singing a hymn. But one is worthy of our hymn, O brothers, the Lamb, on whom the sins of all men lay. The tune was one of Mendelssohn's Songs Without Words. Upon the bench under the church wall sat a boat's crew with their gaze turned seaward. They were leaning forward and smoking, with hands clasped between their knees. All three wore earrings, as a preventive of colds and other evils, and sat in exactly the same position, as if the one were afraid of making himself in the very least different from the others. A traveller came sauntering down from the hotel and approached the fisherman. He had his coat collar turned up and shivered in the chill morning air. Is anything the matter? he asked civilly, raising his cap. His voice sounded gruff. One of the fishermen moved his hand slightly in the direction of his headgear. He was the head man of the boat's crew. The others gazed straight before them without moving a muscle. I mean, as the bell's ringing and the pilot boat's out blowing her horn, the traveler went on are they expecting a ship? Maybe. You never can tell," answered the headman unapproachably. The stranger looked as if he were deeply insulted, but restrained himself. It was only their usual secretiveness, their inveterate distrust of everyone who did not speak their dialect and look exactly like themselves. They sat there, inwardly uneasy, in spite of their wooden exterior, stealing glances at him when he was not looking, and wishing him at Jericho. He felt tempted to tease them a little. "'Dear me, perhaps it's a secret,' he said, laughing. "'Not that I know of,' answered the fisherman cautiously. "'Well, of course I don't expect anything for nothing. And besides, it wears out your talking apparatus to be continually opening and shutting it. How much do you generally get?' He took out his purse." It was his intention to insult them now. The other fishermen threw stolen glances at their leader. If only he did not run them aground. The headman took his pipe out of his mouth and turned to his companions. No, as I was saying, there are some folks that have nothing to do but go about and be clever. He warned them with his eyes. The expression of his face was wooden. His companions nodded. They enjoyed the situation, as the commercial traveller could see from their doltish looks. He was enraged. Here he was, being treated as if he were air and made fun of. Confound you fellows! Haven't you even learnt as much as to give a civil answer to a civil question? He said angrily. The fishermen looked backward and forward at one another, taking mute counsel. No, but I tell you what it is she must come some time said the head man at last what she the steamer of course and she generally comes about this time now you've got it naturally of course but isn't it a little unwise to speak so loud about it jeered the traveller the fishermen had turned their backs on him and were scraping out their pipes we're not quite so free with our speech here as some people and yet we make our living said the headman to the others. They growled their approval. As the stranger wandered on down the harbor hill, the fishermen looked after him with a feeling of relief. What a talker, said one. He wanted to show off a bit, but you gave him what he won't forget in a hurry. Yes, I think it touched him on the raw all right, answered the man with pride. It's these fine gentlemen you need to be most careful of. Halfway down the harbor hill, an innkeeper stood at his door, yawning. The morning stroller repeated his question to him, and received an immediate answer, the man being a Copenhagener. "'Well, you see, we're expecting the steamer from Ystad today, with a big cargo of slaves—cheap Swedish laborers, that's to say—who live on black bread and salt herrings, and do the work of three. They ought to be flogged with red-hot icicles, that sort.' and the brutes of farmers, too. You won't take a little early morning glass of something, I suppose?" No, thank you. I think not, so early. Very well. Please yourself. Down at the harbor a number of farmers' carts were already standing, and fresh ones arrived at full gallop every minute. The newcomers guided their teams as far to the front as possible, examined their neighbors' horses with a critical eye and settled themselves into a half-doze, with their fur collars turned up about their ears. Custom-house men in uniform, and pilots, looking like monster penguins, wandered restlessly about, peering out to sea and listening. Every moment the bell at the end of the mole rang, and was answered by the pilot-boat's horn, somewhere out in the fog over the sea, with a long, dreary hoot, like the howl of some suffering animal. "'What was that noise?' asked a farmer, who had just come, catching up the reins in fear. His fear communicated itself to his horses, and they stood trembling, with heads raised, listening in the direction of the sea, with questioning terror in their eyes. "'It was only the sea serpent,' answered a custom-house officer. "'He always suffers from wind in this foggy weather. He's a wind-sucker, you see.' and the custom-house men put their heads together and grinned. Merry sailors dressed in blue, with white handkerchiefs round their necks, went about patting the horses, or pricking their nostrils with a straw to make them rear. When the farmers woke up and scolded, they laughed with delight and sang, A sailor he must go through, a deal more bad than good, good, good. A big pilot in an iceland vest and woolen gloves, was rushing anxiously about with a megaphone in his hand, growling like an uneasy bear. Now and then he climbed up on the molehead, put the megaphone to his mouth, and roared out over the water. Do you hear anything? The roar went on for a long time out upon the long swells, up and down leaving behind it an oppressive silence, until it suddenly returned from the town above, in the shape of a confused babble that made people laugh. No! was heard a little while after, in a thin and long-drawn-out cry from the sea, and again the horn was heard, a long, hoarse sound that came rocking in on the waves, and burst gurgling in the splash under the wharf and on the slips. The farmers were out of it all. They dozed a little, or sat flicking their whips to pass the time. But everyone else was in a state of suspense. A number of people had gradually gathered about the harbor—fishermen, sailors waiting to be hired, and master artisans who were too restless to stay in their workshop. They came down in their leather aprons, and began at once to discuss the situation. They used nautical expressions most of them having been at sea in their youth. The coming of the steamer was always an event that brought people to the harbor, but today she had a great many people on board, and she was already an hour behind time. The dangerous fog kept the suspense at high pressure, but as the time passed, the excitement gave place to a feeling of dull oppression. Fog is the seaman's worst enemy, and there were many unpleasant possibilities. On the best supposition, the ship had gone inshore too far north or south, and now lay somewhere out at sea, hooting and heaving the lead, without daring to move. One could imagine the captain storming, and the sailors hurrying here and there, lithe and agile as cats. Stop! Half speed ahead! Stop! Half speed astern! The first engineer would be at the engine himself, gray with nervous excitement down in the engine-room, where they knew nothing at all, they would strain their ears painfully for any sound, and all to no purpose. But up on the deck every man would be on the alert for his life, the helmsman wet with the sweat of his anxiety, to watch every movement of the captain's directing hand, and the lookout on the forecastle, peering and listening into the fog, until he could hear his own heart beat while the suspense held every man on deck on tenterhooks, and the foghorn hooted its warning. But perhaps the ship had already gone to the bottom. Everyone knew it all. Every man had in some way or other been through this overcharged suspense, as cabin-boy, stoker, captain, cook, and felt something of it again now. Only the farmers were unaffected by it. They dozed, woke up with a jerk, and yawned audibly. The seafarers and the peasants always had a difficulty in keeping on peaceable terms with one another. They were as different as land and sea. But to-day the indifferent attitude of the peasants made the seafolk eye them with suppressed rage. The fat pilot had already had several altercations with them for being in his way and when one of them laid himself open to criticism, he was down upon him in an instant. It was an elderly farmer, who woke up from his nap with a start, as his head fell forward, and impatiently took out his watch and looked at it. "'It's getting rather late,' he said. "'The captain can't find his stall to-day.' "'More likely he's dropped into an inn on the way,' said the pilot, his eyes gleaming with malice." "'Very likely,' answered the farmer, without for the moment realizing the nature of the paths of the sea. His auditors laughed exultingly, and passed the mistake on to their neighbors, and people crowded round the unfortunate man, while someone cried, "'How many inns are there between this and Sweden?' "'Yes, it's too easy to get hold of liquids out there. That's the worst of it,' the pilot went on. "'But for that any booby could manage a ship.' He's only got to keep to the right of Mads Hansen's farm, and he's got a straight road before him, and the deuce of a fine road, telegraph wires and ditches and a row of poplars on each side, just improved by the local board. You've just got to wipe the porridge off your mustache, kiss the old woman, and climb up on the bridge, and there you are. Has the engine been oiled, Hans? Right away, then, off we go. Hand me my best whip he imitated the peasant's manner of speech be careful about the inns dad he added in a shrill falsetto there were peals of laughter that had an evil sound in the prevailing depression the farmer sat quite still under the deluge only lowering his head a little when the laughter had almost died away he pointed at the pilot with his whip and remarked to the bystanders that's a wonderful clever kid for his age Whose father art thou, my boy?" he went on, turning to the pilot. This raised a laugh, and the thick-necked pilot swelled with rage. He seized hold of the body of the cart and shook it so that the farmer had a difficult time in keeping his seat. "'You miserable old clodhopper, you pig-breeder, you dung-carter!' he roared. What do you mean by coming here and saying thou to grown-up people and calling them boy? and giving your opinions on navigation into the bargain, eh, you lousy old money-grubber? No, if you ever take off your greasy nightcap to anybody but your parish clerk, then take it off to the captain who can find his harbor in a fog like this. You can give him my kind regards and say I said so. And he let go of the cart so suddenly that it swung over to the other side. I may as well take it off to you, as the other doesn't seem able to find us to-day said the farmer with a grin, and took off his fur cap, disclosing a large bald head. "'Cover up that great bald pumpkin, or upon my word I'll give it something,' cried the pilot, blind with rage, and beginning to clamber up into the cart. At that moment, like the thin metallic voice of a telephone, there came faintly from the sea the words, "'We hear a steam whistle!' the pilot ran off to the breakwater, hitting out as he passed at the farmer's horse and making it rear. Men cleared a space round the mooring-posts, and dragged up the gangways with frantic speed. Carts that had hay in them, as if they were come to fetch cattle, began to move without having anywhere to drive to. Everything was in motion. Labor-hirers with red noses and cunning eyes came hurrying down from the sailor's tavern, where they had been keeping themselves warm. Then, as if a huge hand had been laid upon the movement, everything suddenly stood still again, in strained effort to hear. A far-off, tiny echo of a steam whistle whined somewhere a long way off. Men stole together into groups and stood motionless, listening and sending angry glances at the restless carts. Was it real, or was it a creation of the heartfelt wishes of so many? Perhaps a warning to everyone that at that moment the ship had gone to the bottom. The sea always sends word of its evil doings. When the breadwinner is taken, his family hear a shutter creak, or three taps on the windows that look on to the sea. There are so many ways. But now it sounded again and this time the sound come in little waves over the water, the same vibrating subdued whistle that long-tailed ducks make when they rise. It seemed alive. The foghorn answered it out in the fairway, and the bell at the molehead, then the horn once more, and the steam whistle in the distance. So it went on, a guiding line of sound being spun between the land and the indefinite gray out there, Backward and forward here on terra firma one could distinctly feel how out there they were groping their way by the sound. The hoarse whistle slowly increased in volume, sounding now a little to the south, now to the north, but growing steadily louder. Then other sounds made themselves heard. The heavy scraping of iron against iron, the noise of the screw when it was reversed or went in again the pilot boat glided slowly out of the fog, keeping to the middle of the fairway, and moving slowly inward, hooting incessantly. It towed by the sound, an invisible world behind it, in which hundreds of voices murmured thickly amidst shouting and clanging and tramping of feet, a world that floated blindly in space close by. Then a shadow began to form in the fog, where no one had expected it, and the little steamer made its appearance, looking enormous in the first moment of surprise, in the middle of the harbor entrance. At this the last remnants of suspense burst and scattered, and every one had to do something or other to work off the oppression. They seized the heads of the farmers' horses and pushed them back, clapped their hands, attempted jokes, or only laughed noisily while they stamped on the stone paving. "'Good voyage!' asked a score of voices at once. "'All well,' answered the captain cheerfully. And now he, too, has got rid of his incubus, and rolls forth words of command. The propeller churns up the water behind, hawsers fly through the air, and the steam-winch starts with a ringing metallic clang, while the vessel works herself broadside into the wharf. Between the forecastle and the bridge, In under the upper deck and the after, there is a swarm of people, a curiously stupid swarm, like sheep that get up onto one another's backs and look foolish. What a cargo of cattle! cries the fat pilot up to the captain, tramping delightedly on the breakwater with his wooden-soled boots. There are sheepskin caps, old military caps, disreputable old rusty hats, and the women's tidy black handkerchiefs. The faces are as different as old wrinkled pigskin and young ripening fruit, but want and expectancy and a certain animal greed are visible in all of them. The unfamiliarity of the moment brings a touch of stupidity into them, as they press forward or climb up to get a view over their neighbors' heads, and stare open-mouthed at the land where the wages are said to be so high and the brandy so uncommonly strong they see the fat, fur-clad farmers, and the men come down to engage laborers. They do not know what to do with themselves, and are always getting in the way, and the sailors chase them with oaths from side to side of the vessel, or throw hatches and packages without warning at their feet. "'Look out, you Swedish devil!' cries a sailor, who has to open the iron doors. The Swede backs in bewilderment, but his hand involuntarily flies to his pocket and fingers nervously his big pocket-knife. The gangway is down, and the two hundred and fifty passengers stream down it, stonemasons, navvies, maidservants, male and female day-laborers, stablemen, herdsmen, here and there a solitary little cowherd, and tailors in smart clothes, who keep far away from the rest. There are young men straighter and better built than any that the island produces, and old men more worn with toil and want than they ever become here. There are also faces among them that bear an expression of malice, others sparkling with energy, and others disfigured with great scars. Most of them are in working clothes, and only possess what they stand in. Here and there is a man with some tool upon his shoulder, a shovel or a crowbar. Those that have any luggage get it turned inside out by the custom-house officers woven goods are so cheap in sweden now and then some girl with an inclination to plumpness has to put up with the officer's coarse witticisms there for instance is handsome sarah from simrisham whom everybody knows every autumn she goes home and comes again every spring with a figure that at once makes her the butt of their wit but sarah who generally has a quick temper and a ready tongue TODAY DROPS HER EYES IN MODEST CONFUSION. SHE HAS FOURTEEN YARDS OF CLOTH WRAPPED ROUND HER UNDER HER DRESS. THE FARMERS ARE WIDE AWAKE NOW. THOSE WHO DARE LEAVE THEIR HORSES AND GO AMONG THE CROWD. THE OTHERS CHOOSE THEIR LABORERS WITH THEIR EYES AND CALL THEM UP. EACH ONE TAKES HIS MAN'S MEASURE. WIDTH OF CHEST, MODEST MANNER, WRETCHEDNESS. BUT THEY ARE AFRAID OF THE SCARRED AND MALICIOUS FACES and leave them to the bailiffs on the large farms. Offers are made and conditions fixed, and every minute one or two Swedes climb up into the hay in the back of some cart and are driven off. A little on one side stood an elderly bent little man, with a sack upon his back, holding a boy of eight or nine by the hand. Beside them lay a green chest. They eagerly watched the proceedings and each time a cart drove off with some of their countrymen, the boy pulled impatiently at the hand of the old man, who answered by a reassuring word. The old man examined the farmers one by one with an anxious air. Moving his lips as he did so, he was thinking. His red, lashless eyes began watering with the prolonged staring, and he wiped them with the mouth of the coarse, dirty sack. Do you see that one there? he suddenly asked the boy, pointing to a fat little farmer with apple cheeks. "'I should think he'd be kind to children. Shall we try him, laddie?' The boy nodded gravely, and they made straight for the farmer. But when he had heard that they were to go together, he would not take them. The boy was far too little to earn his keep. And it was the same thing every time. It was Lasse Carlson from Tommelila in the Ystad district, and his son Pele. It was not altogether strange to Lasse, for he had been on the island once before, about ten years ago. But he had been younger then, in full vigour, it might be said, and had no little boy by the hand, from whom he would not be separated for all the world. That was the difference. It was the year the cow had been drowned in the Marl pit, and Bengta was preparing for her confinement. Things looked bad but lasse staked his all on one cast and used the couple of kronas he got for the hide of the cow to go to bornholm when he came back in the autumn there were three mouths to fill but then he had a hundred kronas to meet the winter with at that time lasse had been equal to the situation and he would still straighten his bowed shoulders whenever he thought of that exploit afterward whenever there were short commons He would talk of selling the whole affair and going to Bornholm for good. But Bengta's health failed after her late childbearing, and nothing came of it. Until she died after eight years of suffering this very spring. Then Lasse sold their bit of furniture and made nearly a hundred kronas on it. It went in paying the expenses of the long illness, and the house and land belonged to the landlord. A green chest that had been part of Bengta's wedding outfit was the only thing he kept. In it, he packed their belongings and a few little things of Bengta's, and sent it on in advance to the port with the horse dealer who was driving there. Some of the rubbish for which no one would bid, he stuffed into a sack, and with it on his back and the boy's hand clasped in his, he set out to walk to Estad, where the steamer for Rane lay the few coins he had would just pay their passage. He had been so sure of himself on the way, and had talked in loud tones to Pele about the country where the wages were so incomprehensibly high, and where in some places you got meat or cheese to eat with your bread, and always beer, so that the water-cart in the autumn did not come round for the laborers, but only for the cattle. And why, if you liked you could drink gin-like water, It was so cheap. But it was so strong that it knocked you down at the third pull. They made it from real grain, and not from diseased potatoes, and they drank it at every meal. And Laddie would never feel cold there, for they wore wool next to their skin, and not this poor linen that the wind blew right through. And a laborer who kept himself could easily make his two kronas a day, that was something different from their master's miserable eighty auras and finding themselves in everything pelle had heard the same thing often before from his father from ole and anders from karna and a hundred others who had been there in the winter when the air was thick with frost and snow and the needs of the poor there was nothing else talked about in the little villages at home and in the minds of those who had not been on the island themselves but had only heard the tales about it. The ideas produced were as fantastic as the frost tracery upon the window panes. Pelle was perfectly well aware that even the poorest boys there always wore their best clothes, and ate bread and dripping with sugar on it as often as they liked. There money lay like dirt by the roadside, and the born homers did not even take the trouble to stoop and pick it up. But Pelle meant to pick it up so that Father Lasse would have to empty the odds and ends out of the sack and clear out the locked compartment in the green chest to make room for it. And even that would hardly be enough. If only they could begin. He shook his father's hand impatiently. Yes, yes, said Lasse, almost in tears. You mustn't be impatient. He looked about him irresolutely. Here he was in the midst of all this splendor, and could not even find a humble situation for himself and the boy. He could not understand it. Had the whole world changed since his time, he trembled to his very fingertips when the last cart drove off. For a few minutes he stood staring helplessly after it, and then he and the boy together carried the green chest up to a wall, and trudged hand in hand up toward the town. Lasse's lips moved as he walked. He was thinking. In an ordinary way he thought best when he talked out loud to himself. But today all his faculties were alert, and it was enough only to move his lips. As he trudged along his mental excuses became audible. "'Confound it!' he exclaimed, as he jerked the sack higher up his back. "'It doesn't do to take the first thing that comes.' Loss is responsible for two, and he knows what he wants, so there. It isn't the first time he's been abroad, and the best always comes last, you know, laddie. Pelle was not paying much attention. He was already consoled, and his father's words about the best being in store for them were to him only a feeble expression for a great truth, namely, that the whole world would become theirs.' and all that it contained in the way of wonders. He was already engaged in taking possession of it, open-mouthed. He looked as if he would like to swallow the harbor with all its ships and boats, and the great stacks of timber, where it looked as if there would be holes. This would be a fine place to play in, but there were no boys. He wondered whether the boys were like those at home. He had seen none yet. Perhaps they had quite a different way of fighting, but he would manage all right, if only they would come one at a time. There was a big ship right up on land, and they were skinning it. So ships have ribs just like cows. At the wooden shed in the middle of the harbor square Lasse put down the sack, and giving the boy a piece of bread and telling him to stay and mind the sack, he went farther up, and disappeared. Pelle was very hungry, and holding the bread with both hands, he munched at it greedily. When he had picked the last crumbs off his jacket, he set himself to examine his surroundings. That black stuff in the big pot was tar. He knew it quite well, but had never seen so much at once. My word, if you fell into that while it was boiling! it would be worse even than the brimstone pit in hell. And there lay some enormous fish-hooks, just like those that were hanging on thick iron chains from the ship's nostrils. He wondered whether there still lived giants who could fish with such hooks. Strong John couldn't manage them. He satisfied himself with his own eyes, that the stacks of boards were really hollow, and that he could easily get down to the bottom of them if only he had not the sack to drag about. His father had said he was to mind the sack, and he never let it out of his hands for a moment. As it was too heavy to carry, he had to drag it after him from place to place. He discovered a little ship, only just big enough for a man to lie in, and full of holes bored to the bottom and sides. He investigated the shipbuilder's big grindstone, which was nearly as tall as a man. There were bent planks lying there, with nails in them as big as the parish constable's new tether peg at home. And the thing that ship was tethered to, wasn't it a real cannon that had been planted? Pelle saw everything, and examined every single object in the appropriate manner. Now only spitting appraisingly upon it, now kicking it, or scratching it with his knife if he came across some strange wonder or other, that he could not get into his little brain in any other way, he set himself astride on it. This was a new world altogether, and Pelle was engaged in making it his own. Not a shred of it would he leave. If he had had his playfellows from Tomalila here, he would have explained it all to them. My word, how they would stare! But when he went home to Sweden again, He would tell them about it, and then he hoped they would call him a liar. He was sitting astride an enormous mast that lay along the timber-yard upon some oak trestles. He kicked his feet together under the mast, and as he had heard knights doing in olden days under their horses, and imagined himself seizing hold of a ring, and lifting himself, horse and all, he sat on horseback in the midst of his newly discovered world. Glowing with the pride of conquest, struck the horse's loins with the flat of his hand, and dug his heels into its side. While he shouted a song at the top of his voice, he had been obliged to let go the sack to get up. Far away in small land the little imps were dancing, with ready-loaded pistols and rifle-barreled gun. All the little devils they played upon the fiddle, but for the grand piano, Old Harry was the one. In the middle of his noisy joy he looked up, and immediately burst into a roar of terror and dropped down onto the wood shavings. On the top of the shed, at the place where his father had left him, stood a black man and two black open-mouthed hell-hounds. The man leaned half out over the ridge of the roof in a menacing attitude. It was an old figurehead. But Pelle thought it was old Harry himself come to punish him for his bold song, and he set off at a run up the hill. A little way up he remembered the sack and stopped. He didn't care about the sack, and he wouldn't get a thrashing if he did leave it behind, for Father Lasse never beat him. And that horrid devil would eat him up at the very least if he ventured down there again. He could distinctly see how the red nostrils shone, both the devils and the dogs. But Pelle hesitated. His father was so careful of that sack that he would be sure to be sorry if he lost it. He might even cry, as he did when he lost Mother Bengta. For perhaps the first time the boy was being subjected to one of life's serious tests, and stood, as so many had stood before him with the choice between sacrificing himself, and sacrificing others. His love for his father, boyish pride, the sense of duty that is the social dower of the poor, the one thing with the other, determined his choice. He stood the test, but not bravely. He howled loudly the whole time, while, with his eyes fixed immovably upon the evil one and his hellhounds. He crept back for the sack, and then dragged it after him at a quick run up the street. No one is perhaps a hero until the danger is over. But even then Pelle had no opportunity of shuddering at his own courage. For no sooner was he out of the reach of the black man than his terror took a new form. What had become of his father? He had said he would be back again directly, supposing he never came back at all. Perhaps he had gone away, so as to get rid of his little boy, who was only a trouble, and made it difficult for him to get a situation. Pelle felt despairingly convinced that it must be so, as, crying, he went off with the sack. The same thing had happened to other children with whom he was well acquainted. But they came to the pancake cottage and were quite happy, and Pelle himself would be sure to perhaps find the king and be taken in there and have the little princes for his playmates, and his own little palace to live in. But Father Lasse shouldn't have a thing, for now Pelle was angry and vindictive, although he was crying just as unrestrainedly. He would let him stand and knock at the door and beg to come in for three days, and only when he began to cry. No, he would have to let him in at once. For to see Father Lassa cry hurt him more than anything else in the world. But he shouldn't have a single one of the nails Pelle had filled his pockets with down in the timber yard. And when the king's wife brought them coffee in the morning before they were up. But here both his tears and his happy imagining ceased, for out of a tavern at the top of the street came Father Lassa's own living self. He looked in excellent spirits and held a bottle in his hand. Danish brandy, laddie, he cried, waving the bottle. Hats off to the Danish brandy. But what have you been crying for? Oh, were you afraid? And why were you afraid? Isn't your father's name Lasse? Lasse Carlson from Kungstorp. And he's not one to quarrel with. He hits hard, he does, when he's provoked. To come and frighten good little boys. They better look out even if the whole wide world were full of naming devils. Loss is here, and you needn't be afraid. During all this fierce talk, he was tenderly wiping the boy's tear-stained cheeks and nose with his rough hand, and taking the sack upon his back again. There was something touchingly feeble about his stooping figure, as, boasting and comforting, he trudged down again to the harbor, holding the boy by the hand he tottered along in his big waterproof boots, the tabs of which stuck out at the side and bore an astonishing resemblance to Pelle's ears. Out of the gaping pockets of his old winter coat protruded on one side his red pocket handkerchief, on the other the bottle. He had become a little looser in his knee joints now, and the sack threatened momentarily to get the upper hand of him, pushing him forward and forcing him to go at a trot down the hill. He looked decrepit, and perhaps his boastful words helped to produce this effect. But his eyes beamed confidently, and he smiled down at the boy, who ran along beside him. They drew near to the shed, and Pelle turned cold with fear, for the black man was standing there. He went round to the other side of his father, and tried to pull him out in a wide curve over the harbor square. There he is again, he whimpered. So, that's what's after you, is it said, Lasse, laughing heartily, and he's made of wood too. Well, you really are the bravest laddie I ever knew. I should almost think you might be sent out to fight a truss chicken if you had a stick in your hand. Lasse went on laughing and shook the boy good-naturedly, but Pelle was ready to sink into the ground with shame, down by the custom-house. They met a bailiff who had come too late for the steamer and had engaged no laborers. He stopped his cart and asked Lasse if he was looking for a place. "'Yes, we both want one,' answered Lasse briskly. "'We want to be on the same farm, as the fox said to the goose.' The bailiff was a big, strong man, and Pelle shuddered in admiration of his father, who could dare to speak to him so boldly. But the great man laughed good-humoredly. "'Then I suppose he's to be foreman.' he said, flicking at Pelle with his whip. "'Yes, he certainly will be some day,' said Lasse, with conviction. "'He'll probably eat a few bushels of salt first. Well, I'm in want of a herdsman, and will give you a hundred kronas for a year. Although it'll be confounded hard for you to earn them from what I can see. There'll always be a crust of bread for the boy. But of course he'll have to do what little he can. You're his grandfather, I suppose.' "'I'm his father, in the sight of God and man,' answered Lasse proudly. "'Oh, indeed! Then you must still be fit for something, if you've come by him honestly. But climb up, if you know what's for your own good, for I haven't time to stand here. You won't get such an offer every day.' Pelle thought a hundred kronas was a fearful amount of money. Lasse on the contrary, as the older and more sensible, Had a feeling that it was far too little. But, though he was not aware of it yet, the experiences of the morning had considerably dimmed the brightness of his outlook on life. On the other hand, the dram had made him reckless and generously minded. All right, then, he said with a wave of the hand. But the master must understand that we won't have salt herring and porridge three times a day. We must have a proper bedroom, too." and be free on Sundays." He lifted the sack and the boy up into the cart, and then climbed up himself. The bailiff laughed. "'I see you've been here before, old man. But I think we shall be able to manage all that. You shall have roast pork stuffed with raisins and rhubarb jelly with pepper on it, just as often as you like to open your mouth.' They drove down to the quay for the chest, and then toward the country again. Lasse, who recognized one thing and another, explained it all in full to the boy, taking a pull at the bottle between whiles. But the bailiff must not see this. Pelle was cold and burrowed into the straw, where he crept closer up to his father. "'You take a mouthful,' whispered Lasse, passing the bottle to him cautiously. "'But take care that he doesn't see, for he's a sly one, he's a jute.' Pelle would not have a dram. "'What's a jute?' he asked in a whisper. "'A jute? Good gracious me, laddie. Don't you know that?' "'It was the jutes that crucified Christ. That's why they have to wander all over the world now, and sell flannel and needles and such like. And they always cheat wherever they go. Don't you remember the one that cheated Mother Bengta of her beautiful hair?' "'Ah, no, that was before your time. That was a jute, too.' He came one day when I wasn't at home and unpacked all his fine wares, combs and pins with blue glass heads and the finest headkerchiefs. Women can't resist such trash. They're like what we others are when someone holds a brandy bottle to our nose. Mother Binta had no money, but that sly devil said he would give her the finest handkerchief if she would let him cut off just the end of her plate. And then he went and cut it off close up to her head. My goodness, but she was like flint and steel when she was angry! She chased him out of the house with a rake, but he took the plate with him, and the handkerchief was rubbish, as might have been expected, for the Jutes are cunning devils who crucified. Lasse began at the beginning again. Pelle did not pay much attention to his father's soft murmuring. It was something about Mother Bengta, but she was dead now and lay in the black earth she no longer buttoned his undervest down the back or warmed his hands when they were cold so they put raisins into pork roast in this country did they money must be as common as dirt there was none lying about in the road and the houses and farms were not so fine either but the strangest thing was that the earth here was of the same color as that at home although it was a foreign country he had seen a map in tomalila in which each country had a different color. So that was a lie. Lassa had long since talked himself out, and slept with his head upon the boy's back. He had forgotten to hide the bottle. Pelle was just going to push it down into the straw when the bailiff, who as a matter of fact was not a jute but a zealander, happened to turn round and caught sight of it. He told the boy to throw it into the ditch. By midday they reached their destination. Lasse awoke as they drove on to the stone paving of the large yard, and groped mechanically in the straw. But suddenly he recollected where he was, and was sober in an instant. So this was their new home, the only place they had to stay in and expect anything of on this earth. And as he looked out over the big yard, where the dinner bell was just sounding, And calling servants and day laborers out of all the doors, all his self-confidence vanished. A despairing feeling of helplessness overwhelmed him, and made his face tremble with impotent concern for his son. His hand shook as he clambered down from the wagon. He stood irresolute and at the mercy of all the inquiring glances from the steps down to the basement of the big house. They were talking about him and the boy and laughing already. In his confusion he determined to make as favorable a first impression as possible, and began to take off his cap to each one separately, and the boy stood beside him and did the same. They were rather like the clowns at a fair, and the men round the basement steps laughed aloud and bowed in imitation, and then began to call to them. But the bailiff came out again to the cart, and they quickly disappeared down the steps. From the house itself there came a far-off, monotonous sound that never left off, and insensibly added to their feeling of depression. "'Don't stand there playing the fool,' said the bailiff sharply. "'Be off down to the others and get something to eat. You'll have plenty of time to show off your monkey tricks to them afterwards.' At these encouraging words the old man took the boy's hand and went across to the basement steps with despair in his heart. Mourning inwardly for Tomalila and Kungstorp, Pelle clung close to him in fear. The unknown had suddenly become an evil monster in the imagination of both of them. Down in the basement passage the strange persistent sound was louder, and they both knew that it was that of a woman weeping. End of chapter One.